Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm Coach Andrew Poretz from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission, to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams and with my coaching, help you to make those dreams happen. You can visit my website at myfuturecoach.com and follow me on Twitter at Coach Andrew. If you're listening live and you have a question, the phone number here is 646-929-2893. You'll be able to listen to the show on the phone, and if you press the number 1, I'll know you have a question. We also have a live chat room right on the show page where you can feel free to join in. My guest today is Stephen Hanks, who is the lead cabaret reviewer and columnist for BroadwayWorld.com and a feature writer reviewer for Cabaret Scenes Magazine. Stephen was also my sports editor at the Meridian newspaper at Lehman College back in the early days, many, many moons ago, back in the Bronx, where I wrote about baseball of all things. Now, it seems that everyone I know in the world of cabaret and nightclubs has Stephen Hanks as a mutual, mutual friend. So tonight, among other things, we're going to be talking about musical theater, cabaret, a little Jolson, and baseball, which has been very, very good to me. Stephen Hanks, are you with me? Yes, I am. Good to talk to you, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Yeah, I'm just like flashing back to the very first moment that I met you. I, I was... noticed that you didn't want to mention the year that you were uh, working for Meridian. <laughs> <laughs> but but if um, uh, I don't know, you, you probably came came to the paper. And and people, one thing I should I should say up front about about this. You know, this was at Herbert H. Lehman College, which was a city university in New York mm-hmm. school. And in the days that we were on the paper, and I will now reveal the year, I was the I was the editor in chief in the fall of 1975, um, which I, which is, my mouth my throat is choking saying that year. <laughs> um, but it, it but we uh, we that paper was really special. Um, Meridian in those years, you know, was a consistently award-winning newspaper, mm-hmm. which was um, pretty special for a CUNY school that was going up against, you know, in these various awards competitions. And there were there were a number of them: Columbia University, and I think um, University of Minnesota had a competition for college newspapers, and we were consistently winning awards going up against. You know the Columbia's and the NYU's of the world. You know, at least in the New York area. So it was, it was kind of like a golden age for all the people that, um, all the students that were editors and writers for Meridian in those years in the, um, in the early to, to I guess mid '70s period. It was it was an amazing experience, and uh, and I relished every moment of of, of that. That time for me it was just a year and a half before I left to go to Maryland. Mm-hmm. But I still remember the moment that uh, I saw you for the very first time at the uh, at the orientation, and uh, uh, that was uh, when I met the uh, the uh, our, our, our the twin sisters, uh, one of whom became your girlfriend. Well, I was my fiance briefly. Wow. <laughs> right. But at that we time, I think you were just I think we all met each other at the same moment and and uh and oh, you're you're the newspaper guy. Yeah, I want to be in the newspaper. Okay. I I think you just enrolled me instant, instantly and Yeah, uh, I was just starting as sports editor that mm-hmm. year. I think that was the 
you must have started um, the that fall of '74. That's correct. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so did you um you might have ended up covering me when I was playing on the baseball team. Exactly. In fact, that was the thing with you said, uh I I need somebody to write about the baseball team because I'm on the baseball team and it just doesn't really work for me to write about myself. It's a little weird. Far be it for me to have a conflict of interest. Yes. It's a little bit of a conflict. Oh, you didn't want it to look like you had a conflict. Exactly. And so me, uh, who was, let me tell you, I was, you know, I actually had this half of a of a little league award that's all broken. I was in little league for five minutes. The worst baseball player in the history of baseball. <laughs> they actually they had a plaque for me, right field, just sit here and wait, you know. Um, but you then said, okay, you're going to have to learn how to score a box score. Like, you hear, you know how to score a box score? I said, I have no idea. And you said, well, that's one of the things you're going to have to learn because you're going to be writing baseball. And then you taught me. Interesting. Yeah, that's um, – it's starting to come back to me now. And that um, – I, I probably couldn't have taught you how to how to be much of a better writer because I was still learning how to become a better writer myself. But – the box score thing I had down pat. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm a, you know, the writing thing has thankfully always been a, a, a gift in my family. Everyone in my family has a gift of writing, but baseball was not, you know, like that was really a, a, a new thing for me. And I, and I, you know, when we had that, um, that uh, uh, Meridian uh, a reunion a couple of years ago, and you amazingly had these old Meridians out. Yeah, yeah. Including ones that I, oh, my God, I wrote that? I know. That's my reaction to um, to a lot of the things that I wrote in college. I'm sure, I'm sure anybody that, whether they become a professional writer or just writes for fun when they get older or as a hobby, probably looks back on what they wrote when they were in college and cringes. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what's so funny about those years is that when I, when I first – I joined Meridian as a freshman, and when I when I entered the college newspaper office, you know I was full of spit and vinegar and confidence. And I walked in there and I told the sports editor that I wasn't going to cover a team; I was going to be a columnist. And you know, imagine this: a freshman coming into the office, and amazingly, they let me write a column. And so, you know, so here I would be, you know, every every other week I'd, you know, be pontificating about something that was going on, you know, in sports. And uh, and and once in a while I wrote columns about politics too because I've always been, you know, a big political buff and and those years were were really volatile years politically not mm. only in the country but in the city. Sure. And um so I would write columns about that and I thought they were brilliant, and years later, after I became a professional magazine editor and, you know, worked with people who really knew what the craft was about, I would go back to those columns and just, like, shake my head and say, I can't believe I ever wrote anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> so, uh, wow. And sometimes I even do that now, but so, but that's another story. You know, the, the, the really uh, kind of ironic thing is the, the one of the biggest reasons I left – Lehman was because uh, I was a journal. I was a, 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 an English major, and they didn't have a journalism major there. Right. That's right. That's why I worked on the paper because 
I wanted to go into newspaper or magazine journalism, and all you could do was, you know, you could be an English major, but right. you know, it was you'd get more experience working on on well, the paper. Well, what I didn't understand at that time was that that was the journalism major was being on the Meridian, and yeah. and yeah. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to go to a journalism school and. And meanwhile, uh, how many people from that paper wound up having actual journalism careers or a substantial number? Unbelievable amount. I mean, like, uh, like serious yeah. careers. I mean, I, I would say, I, I, you know, I, I don't know the exact number, but I have to believe that more than 50% of the people um, that were on the paper in those years ended up having careers in journalism. And, and you know, one of the reasons I think that happened was. Although, you know, those are the days of free tuition and open admission yeah. in City University mm -hmm. where, you know, a lot of people would look at that and say, well, you know, it was a free school. You know, what kind of quality of students are you really going to get? They're not paying their way. They're not on scholarship. But, but you know, the the profile of the students in those years, in the late 60s, early 70s to mid-70s, you know, you had a lot of middle-class Jewish, Italian, uh, Irish, you know, kids in, in the Bronx who were really, really bright kids, and had they had, you know, the financial resources to go to Ivy League schools, probably could have. Mm -hmm. And But they were middle-class or, or working-class, and, and this was the opportunity to get, uh, get an education that was affordable. And so... Um, that 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 led to you know an organization on a college campus like a newspaper right. to have really talented young kids and it wasn't only Lehman it was Queens College Brooklyn mm -hmm. you know you could go right down the line. Sure, and yeah. my brother went to went to Queens College. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld famously went there. Sure. But those were the days. Now maybe now, now maybe we have to move on to the 21st century <laughs> in our discussion. Well, yeah, yeah. But you just reminded me, like, I can recall a time when people were complaining because the student fee went from, like, $54 to 60 and that was – that's all you paid to go to school. Really? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was really an amazing time, but it was, it, it was also a time where, you know, we – there was one there was one downside to the period that we were there and you'll remember this well we were going to Lehman right in this in the middle of the New York City financial crisis yes and um because of that uh the construction that had started a few years before we had gotten to the campus came to a screeching halt and uh, you know we we ended up having a lot of our student activities in those temporary uh right. trailer buildings uh, because because the buildings that used to that had once housed the student activities were shut down and you know had scaffolds all over the place and you know the financial crisis in the city just wiped out the funds and and everything came to a halt so it was uh, there were there were plenty of eyesores at Lima College in those years but I think uh, I think the students made the best of the situation you know you, now I'm having you know actually recalling I had gone to visit the school while I was still in high school with my parents and it was this beautiful campus at that moment just mm -hmm. you know half a year earlier uh and then they started that digging out the, the right in the front there uh and left it like that 
Yeah, as soon as we left, they started working on it. Right. You know, it was like <laughs> I think it was, they were waiting for us. Yeah, us. exactly. As soon as that Hanks guy is out of there, let's get the bulldozers exactly. Back yeah, in. he's causing too much trouble. Too let's way get too him much up. trouble. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, so so after after uh, college, you know, how did where did your career go in the world of journalism? Well, I mean, this is another one of the great things about the situation at Lehman. Now that you mentioned what happened next, because um, I, I my senior year, I had gotten an internship through the English department. On uh, actually, this is a really great story, so I'll back it up a little bit. Sure. Um, the, the the school amazingly had a relationship with Penthouse Magazine of all things. Wow. And and one of our fellow Meridianites, um, somebody you know well, Andrea Stone, who was mm-hmm. one of our friends who went on to have a a, a really good journalism career, um, had been a year ahead of me and had an internship on Penthouse Magazine. And then, so my 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 semester came up, and I was going to sort of take over her slot. Now, when, so when I went in, uh, I guess it was the fall of '77. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned out that although the internship was going to be at Penthouse, the company, they were going to have me work on a new publication they were launching called Variations. And I don't think I have to draw a picture of what variations was about. <laughs> so I realized immediately, like the first day that I was there, that this might be a problem for the school and the school needed to know about it because I didn't think the school knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went back to school, told the faculty advisor, and 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 he said, oh well, no, 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 you can't you can't work on a on a publication like that. It's just way over the top. Um, it's not good for the school's reputation. Mm-hmm. Why Penthouse was okay, and this wasn't, I don't know, but that's another story. Anyway, um, so now I had no internship, and I said to my faculty advisor, listen, I grew up. My favorite magazine growing up as a kid was Sport Magazine which unfortunately is no longer with us, but it had been around for almost 50 years by the time it, it went under uh, a number of years ago. Mm. But it was probably, the next to Sports Illustrated, it was probably the best sports magazine in the country. And I loved that magazine and dreamed about working on it. So I I asked my faculty advisor to contact them and see if they needed you know anybody that would just you know go get coffee for the editors. And amazingly, um, they contacted them. They said, yes, send the kid over. I ended up getting an internship on Sport Magazine. After I graduated, they hired me as an associate editor. And um, by by two years later, by the time I was 25, I was editor-in-chief of the magazine for the National Hockey League. And so... I I had sort of that that's kind of launched my career as a sports magazine editor and I was in that area for probably the next 20 years of my career. I'm just think having a, a really funny internal joke here. I don't know if you want to hear it. <laughs> as, as long as it's uh, legal on the air. You oh, know, sure, sure it's legal, but I mean like <laughs> I'm thinking like in, compared to the magazine that you almost went to. 
Yeah, right. So it's like, oh, you could have gone to spurt, but you went to sport. I could. Well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> boom, rim shot. I, I had to go there because my brain was going there. I wanted to yeah. share it with the rest of the class. And by the way, variations lasted a really long time. <laughs> oh, that's, and that's ironic. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, that's so. That's pretty much, um, you know, I've been a magazine editor for 32 years now, and I've I've worked on a lot of different uh, publications and subjects. You know, the, the magazine industry has always been very volatile, and um, so I've moved around a lot on, in that part of my career. I I edited a magazine, I edited an archaeology magazine for kids for a couple of years hmm. that won a number of awards. Um, I actually was the launch editor for that. Um, I've, I've worked on a, a health and nutrition magazine for a couple of years as mm-hmm. the editor and publisher. Um, but but mostly, you know, the, the first two-thirds of my career was focused on sports. And then a couple of years ago, um, I decided, you know, I wanted to check out some, you know, some of these open mic cabaret um, right. variety shows because I've always loved singing. And I, I heard about... You know, this one particular open mic called Wednesday Night at the Iguana, which is uh, was hosted by Dana Lorge, mm-hmm. very colorful woman in the cabaret scene. And I just went to check it out one night, and the next week I um, I went to, to, to do a couple of songs and found Cabaret Scenes magazine. And I had never done any kind of reviewing, uh, whether it's music, theater, whatever. It, it was something that just was not on my radar but I was always interested in it and um it looked like they they needed you know those magazines are always you know looking for volunteers to contribute to the publications so I just gave it a shot and volunteered to write for them and they said sure you know you have the credentials and the next thing I knew I was I was reviewing cabaret shows and I've been doing it now pretty consistently for a couple of years and and not only writing for cabaret scenes but for broadwayworld.com now so it's been it's been a tremendous amount of fun and um and and i i seem to be have gotten a good reaction to to what i've been doing in the cabaret world so it's been great no i have this sort of uh alter ego myself as uh you know as a, somebody who sings i have a i come from a musical family and everybody sings my brother's a professional singer out in california and uh, I sing whenever any chance I get. And my my uh, you you may or may not know that my singing voice is in a movie called Two Family House. I did not know that. And now you know. There you uh, go. I'm the the voice of the lead actor named Michael Rispoli. And um, so this is like a place where I've gone to also uh, not I'm not writing about about it, but I I seem to have my toes my, several toes in the water of the cabaret. Scene, you might say, and, and one of the, one of the results is I ha- we, we you and I seem to have a tremendous number of friends in common. Well, I, well, it is it is a small universe in the New York cabaret world, so it's mm-hmm. not hard to <laughs> for people to know each other intimately yeah, after ever, a certain like, amount of time. Like I may see one person, we'll have like four or five, but you're the one. Like you're like the one common denominator. It's like I can almost guarantee if I meet somebody in that world, you're you're already there. <laughs> <laughs> It's like you know, it's everybody. It's I must be I must be getting out way too much then. That must be, <laughs> that must be the problem. You know, and so uh, I, I got to actually um, 
participate in a, in a in a a workshop with Marilyn May. Oh yeah, I've heard about those. Those, those sound tremendous. They, it's absolutely amazing, amazing event. That's how I know several people. You know, uh, uh, like Marissa Mulder, for example. I when I went to the show that you were at. That's for her, right. For her, uh, I brought uh, her, her, her her illusion TV, show this summer. Illusion yeah. show, absolutely. Um, and we were in a we were we went to school together <laughs> for one day. That's right. Well, that's right. Now you know I know this is something that we wanted to talk about the um the broadwayworld.com connection as and my writing for them is has led to something really exciting that's actually going on right now and that is that um a few months ago uh the publishers of Broadway World uh, told me that they wanted to do an awards competition mm-hmm. for New York Cabaret, yeah. and they wanted me to kind of, you know, oversee it and organize it and help them pick the categories that were going to be voted on and make sure that the nominations were valid and, you know, appropriate for 2012 and that the people being nominated were in the right categories, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, the nomination process went during, went through the month of October, and then the voting started at the beginning of November and, and is going to be ongoing until the 31st of December, and then we'll announce the winners. But i got to tell you, the, i am really been surprised and pleased by the buzz that's been, been created over, these, um, over this awards competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, and I think primarily because it, you can vote online – um, anybody who has seen a show can vote, um, you know, by putting in their aim, email address. If they go to broadwayworld.com and and go to the cabaret area, they'll find, you know, the the awards ballots. Um, you know, there are some, you know, very famous names that are on some of the categories, like sure. Patty Lapone and mm-hmm. Ben Vereen. Um, in addition to you know the well-known people that are in the New York cabaret world that we right. you and I see all the time, so um, you know we're really excited about what's been going on. And then to top everything off, uh, the Metropolitan Room, which is the great club in Chelsea uh, on 22nd between Fifth and Sixth Avenue. Bernie Firstpan, the manager over there, when he heard about it, said, you know, well, why don't you do a show here? And one thing led to another, and now on February 21st, we will be having a BroadwayWorlds.com award show where as many of the winners of the awards as possible that we can get, you know, the ones who are in town mm-hmm. um, and and who were willing to do it, and I can't imagine they wouldn't be if they don't have a gig, Sure, um, will be performing. So it should be a, an amazing night. And um, you know I'm really excited about it, um, and and it's just uh, it's just been a tremendous experience. And the the thing that I'm most gratified about in all of this, uh, culminating with the Broadway World Awards, is that you know once I got involved in cabaret, I realized that there was a tremendous amount of talent, much of which is unknown. Um, because, you know, in the scheme of the entertainment, you know, priority list, you know, cabaret isn't high up there when you compare it to, you know, Broadway musicals, sure. off-Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I think once people understand 
um, the breadth and the depth of the talent of the people that are in cabaret, they would really be really surprised at how great it is. I mean, it's just it's just one of those New York things. You just have so many talented people in New York who, for whatever reason, whether it's luck or you know their their financial situation or who they know or whatever it may be may not get that big break that they're looking for but they're they're still tremendously talented and um and people in New York City can get to see some of these people almost every night of the week if they know where to look for them like where are some of those places well like i said you have the metropolitan room that, on 22nd street yeah. You've got Don't Tell Mama mm-hmm. on Restaurant Row, which is you know famous, been around for thirty. Sure. I, I think they're actually celebrating their thirtieth year this year. Um, you've got uh, the Triad mm-hmm. on Seventy Second Street off of Broadway, right up mm-hmm. the block from the famous Papaya King uh, <laughs> yep. hot dog place. Uh, the Duplex in the Village. Um, I actually saw two shows there yesterday that were that were great. Um, and then the big new one that opened up in June, 54 Below, which is, you know, downstairs in the old 50, uh, Studio 54 space, right. is a beautiful new club that, you know, has had, you know, major, you know, Broadway stars uh, headlining there. Uh, people, like I said, Patti LuPone, Ben Vereen, Brian D'R.C. James, Marin Maisie, uh, Jason Robert Brown. Uh, Norbert Leo Butts. I mean, it, the the list goes on and on. And and Anne Hampton Calloway. Yeah, I was at her show and Anne's show. Yeah, and Anne Anne Hampton Calloway will probably right now she's in the lead, so I shouldn't say it's definitely <laughs> going to happen. But she's currently leading the best the, the show of the year category <clears throat> on the Broadway World Awards, as well as the tribute show. So uh, and I and and like you know you saw it and I saw it. It was just a phenomenal show. So. Um, it was it was a really good timing for a club like 54 Below to open in the wake of the closing of the Oak Room, which was a famous long-time sure. cabaret room that unfortunately closed. And also the it, so it's you know cabaret. A lot of people think cabaret is like a dying art form, but in New York City, it's definitely not dying. You know, it's uh, uh, Marilyn May, who's uh, also good friends with Anne Hampton Calloway. Um, she said in her class, "I don't, I don't call it cabaret. I'm old school. I call it nightclubs." Yeah. <laughs> well, that's been, you know, that's been the um, one of the big issues with with cabaret or the, whatever the art form is, because you know, it's it's confused with the with the movie. Um, there mm-hmm. are no, you know people. There are a number of gentlemen, quote unquote, gentlemen's clubs, which are basically strip clubs that call themselves cabarets. Mm. Um, so you know, there's a little bit. There's always been a little bit of identity. Maybe not always, but there currently is a little bit of an identity crisis in terms of what really is the is the word to be using for this type of entertainment and. You know, Fifty Four Below is kind of bringing back the nightclub aspect of it. But you know, whether it's nightclub or cabaret, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. it's it's a really wonderful, intimate um, entertainment form that combines you know great singing with you know with with good scripts and and hopefully good acting. Um, there are some tremendous directors and musical directors in New York that are doing these shows. 
So um, I think I think cabaret is actually on the upswing, and and it seems like everybody uh, who ever dreamed about singing, you know, wants to wants to book a room for and do a show. Absolutely, you're yeah. talking to one right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm actually planning on doing a show in the spring. So, but I don't want to talk too much about it because it's still way too early. <laughs> Oh well, you know we should go back to our our, our roots, and I'll have to write about you since you're going to have to come on the video. There you go. <laughs> and, but I, I won't I won't influence you know whatever your review is is up to you. I promise <laughs> I won't influence you. But if it's not positive, I'll never do your show again. Yeah, there no. you go. <laughs> did you know that I I actually got to get on stage and sing a song with Anne Hampton Calloway? When did were you able to do that during her during her run or some other? No, time? this was just like this. I went to see her, and I, I've talked about this on the show before. I had Kitty Scribella on the show, right, a few weeks ago. Uh, but I was in uh, in uh, Chicago uh, the weekend of July fourth of two thousand and ten, and Anne was there, and I and I said, oh, I'm going to be there. Maybe I'll get to go to your show. I wound up dragging uh, uh, four people to the show. Sat at the very very front. Of the theater, it was a beautiful uh, old, old-timey theater in the in Chicago, and, and in the middle of her show, for reasons that I will never understand, other than that I made this happen in my mind, dreaming it. You know, this is like a fantasy come true. She goes, "I know we have a lot of great singers in the audience, but anybody like to come up and sing a song with me?" Like that, that doesn't happen, does it? No, it's it's very it's like rare. Never happened very in the history rare. of. of I, mean, I raised my you get hand called up to be a prop for somebody. You yeah, know, you get but, yeah. But I like my hand shot up into the air, and <laughs> she called me up on stage, and and so okay. So tell everybody who you are. I said I'm Andrew, your Facebook friend. Oh, you made it. And and we. Did so it, what did we, you end up singing? I can't give you anything but love. Oh, nice. This song, and I even nice. gave her some uh, big harmony notes. So I was very excited. Uh, and needless to say, my friends were like, "What the hell?" They were like, "This is not happening," you know. Uh, your brush with greatness, as yes. David Letterman would say. Absolutely. It <laughs> <laughs> was like, like I, you know, I, I don't think I slept for like days after that. I was just like so excited. There you go. No, it, it's not surprising with Anne because she's a she's a terrific person and a hell of an entertainer and just a tremendous amount of fun. Um, I'd almost, I'd almost now, now that I've seen a couple of her shows, I, I'd almost rather just hang out with her and have drinks than, you know, even more so than going to see her perform again, <laughs> just because she's just seems like such a fun person to be around. Oh yeah, I mean, she when, when I saw, I went to not this year but last year's uh, cabaret awards show. And when she closed the show with uh, with Marilyn May, and but before that, she made up a blues song. Where she just uh, said, "Okay, I'm uh, I'm going to write a song right now, and give me some." Uh, you know, she call people would call out words that she wanted, she, whatever words you wanted in the song, and every single word she got into the song and it made it rhyme and made it musically magnificent. And I actually didn't even know she played the piano so well. I mean, I always see her standing just in the front, um, accompany herself on the piano. I was like, absolutely blew me away. Yeah, no, she's great, and 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 there are so many um, people in in the cabaret community, entertainers that are are tremendous as well. You know, funny, uh, outgoing, talented, uh, engaging, charismatic, mm-hmm. and it's just um, it, it's just experiencing this 
over the last couple of years after not really being exposed to it, you know, in my life before this, other than hearing about it. Maybe I occasionally went to a show if I, you know, if it was a, if it was a big name person and they were doing a specific show. Like Mm -hmm. I remember, um, you know, I, I remember a guy named Darren Williams who I found out was doing a Peter Allen show at the Metropolitan Room like three years ago, mm. you know, before I got involved as a writer. And I just said, oh, my God, there's a, you know, I love Peter Allen. There's somebody doing a Peter Allen tribute show in Cabaret. And and so I went to that show, and he was absolutely fabulous, to use a Peter Allen word. <laughs> and... Um, and uh and I got and it was at the Metropolitan Room and I got a little taste of it there. Um and started thinking, you know, wow, you know, I got to I got to start checking this out and seeing what it's all about. So it's um I I really I I recommend it to anybody who has not experienced it um and and the great thing about it is is it's a, it's great entertainment and it's affordable. You're not going to be paying, you know, $120 to sit in the front row of of a, one of these clubs. Right. So um, it, it's um, it's a lot of fun, and, and I'm hoping that uh, more and more people will come out, and maybe the Broadway World Awards will help, you know, facilitate that in some way. Yeah, that'll be good. I definitely want to be at that show. Hope I can get in. Well, well you, as, as I would tell anybody, it's time to reserve your tickets now. I'm sure there's plenty available. <laughs> okay. The, the, the rush won't happen until after the uh, awards are announced, right. most likely. Now, have you uh, seen Cabaret outside of New York? Um, I th- I be- yeah, I remember going to a show. I think I went to a show in Chicago uh, a number of years ago, just when I was, you know, on a business trip. Mm-hmm. But... Not really. I mean, I, I haven't been out to California much. I know there's some good cabaret out there. Yeah, the um, great room in San Francisco called the Raz Room. The, the Raz Room, yeah. Which I've Everybody been, my brother there. sings there quite quite often, actually. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, that's great. The last time I was out there, the, the 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 show before my brother's show, the same night, was Trini Lopez. Wow. Who uh, I I got to chat with and got my couple of pictures with him. And uh, he tell you, he he told me his big his big secret that he's actually Jewish. Is that right? That's what he told me. He told huh. me his original name, which I, for the life of me I can't remember. He said he had he had to change his name to get into show business and 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 play off the uh, the Latin the Latin look. <laughs> and he's wasn't made he a whole the, life wasn't, he, wasn't he the guy that broke his neck para, uh, parachuting out of the plane in the Dirty Dozen? I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just that that's you know yeah weird trivia just comes to me whenever I hear about these celebrities. I I think you might have that right, but I'm, yeah. I'm not 100 percent sure. But uh, <laughs> I I told him that to this day uh, I'm 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 a weird guy that uh, I eat lemon like it's a fruit. Uh. Uh-huh. That a fruit you should eat, and you know he sings about you know don't eat the lemon, you know a lemon tree very pretty. Right, right, right. That's I think that was like his trademark song. Yeah, no? that and yeah. Uh, if I had a hammer, which believe it or not, it was a trademark song. Even though it wasn't his song, he he had a big hit on it. That's that's pretty cool. And the woman you had just mentioned, I saw at the Raz Room. Oh, uh, Mazzy, what's her name? Marin Mazzy. Ma- Marin Mazzy, I saw at the Raz Room a couple yeah. of years ago, and she was tremendous. 
Yeah, I mean the thing about that that, that room, I believe, is that they have um, a mixture of jazz and and um, great American songbook mm-hmm. singers. I mean, I, I know Karen Akers plays there once mm-hmm. in a while. I, every anybody that you know like goes through that part of the country um, plays there. You know, I mean Therese Janeco, who's you know become a big cabaret star in New York. Now with her show at the Iridium, played there years ago when she was on the West Coast. And I think she occasionally even goes back. Um, Shaney Rainbolt. Um, there, there are a number of you know cabaret performers that we see in New York regularly that that bounce out to the West Coast and play that room. So um, it's a coast to coast phenomenon. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really a, it's a it's a really terrific room. I actually got to uh, join my brother on stage there um, about a year a year and a half ago, and do a bit which you can actually uh, see on Facebook. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it was definitely a, you know a very uh, wonderful moment. So uh, now aside, oh, you know what I really wanted to get back with you on is one thing that you and I have in common. We both love Al Jolson. Yeah, Big Al. You know, he's. Um, where do you want to start with that? Because there's a lot of co- <laughs> there's a uh, lot of ground to cover. <laughs> well, you know, for me, like the, the, I I first found Jolson, and I believe you probably did too, watching the Million Dollar Movie. That is the story that um, probably uh, almost every uh, American who is a member of the International Al Jolson Society, which I am a member of, by the way. Wow. And and there are, I, th- I believe now there may be in the neighborhood of a 1,000 uh, who are members of the society. They have that story, at least the most of the American um, members. Um, so there are still some left that uh still with us who actually saw Jolson perform, which I am very jealous of. Oh, me too. Um but uh yeah, that's um that million dollar movie experience is is, is a common thread and it, it's 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 pretty strange. I mean, because most of the people that have that story about falling in love with Jolson from the million dollar movie showing the Jolson story were kids. Yeah, you know, it, this is not people that were, you know, adults that had some great knowledge of music or had, you know, were very discerning in their musical taste or they were music historians. You know, I, I think I was ten years old when I was exposed to that mm-hmm. film, and um, it, you know, it's it, I still have a hard time. Although I although I've written about this and I've I've tried to express what I think the pull was for me or the connection was for me or why I was so taken with, it was actually Larry Parks playing Jolson in the movie. Yeah. Right. Um, no matter how much I explain it, it's still really difficult to understand why uh, that had so much resonance at that point in my life. Um, other than it, other than it just seemed like, uh, you know, a really wonderful story about about this young kid who had this dream of singing and then, you know, ended up being this, like, incredibly charismatic entertainer. I, I, you know, I think one of the things for me about it, and I don't know if you feel the same way, is that the sense that I got from the movie was that Jolson 
obviously he was a ham and an egomaniac and yeah. all those things that people say about him. But I, I can't think of anybody, even today, who has put as much passion into their performance mm-hmm. to the point where it, it was just it was just everything. It was the the performance was everything. You know, I, I remember reading a great line from Larry Parks, and I hope I get this right because it's a little bit complicated, but he he was asked about what it was like to um to 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 do the songs that that he would have to that he would lip sync to Jolson's records. And his lip syncing performance is probably the greatest lip sync performance mm. in the history of film. And his line was that it's it's very difficult to sing I, I, it had something to do with how difficult it was to breathe when you were doing a song when the voice that you were listening to was still going. You know, and and, and it said to me that, you know, even Larry Parks in playing Jolson was just overwhelmed with the incredible energy and passion mm-hmm. that Jolson exhibited when he performed. And I and I still to this day can't think of anyone like that. You know, I mean, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe, you know, I I guess I guess rock and roll fans would consider somebody like Springsteen to be someone like that or or the late Sammy Davis. Might or be. yeah, or the late Sammy Davis, but uh, yeah, I I you could probably put him in that category. But the, but the amazing thing about Jolson was and remember when you know when he was doing theater, um, musical theater in the late teens and 20s, there were no mics. You know, you didn't have stage mics, you didn't have hand mics, you didn't have mics attached to you. Right. You had to be heard clearly in the back of the room, you know, in the back of these really big theaters. And apparently, you know, the people that saw him perform live just were electrified on a regular basis by this guy. And um, and I don't even think seeing him on film, you know, could capture what it must have been like. And yet, and yet, it was and maybe because we saw it so many times, <laughs> and we re- kind of reimagined it and imagined ourselves being there. That uh, that it, uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously we we weren't there, but I always feel like I was. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, thankfully we have the records and. Um, and there's always new stuff coming out. You know, one of the great things about the society is that they have people that very diligently, um, uh, you know, contact you know the old movie studios and record companies and and track down you know like really vintage, rare recordings and and film clips. So um, I'll give you an example of something that happened recently. And I've been in the society since 1985. And just when you think that you cannot find, you cannot see anything new, you cannot see another rare piece of footage. Like there was a, there's a famous piece of footage that was uncovered a few years ago where, where Jolson did, um, Jolson doing a screen test, mm. um, you know, before the jazz singer to test, to test talking pictures. Um, but this one piece of footage I could not believe. It was an outtake from the Jolson story, which was 
there there is a great old Yiddish song called Cantor on the Sabbath that Jolson you can hear on on records. It's it's sung completely in Yiddish that Jolson sings, and Larry Parks lip synced this entire Yiddish song, and it's a story song, so it goes on for a while. Mm. And the scene takes place, you know, remember how, you know, they had these scenes where after the shows, Jolson would entertain like 8,000 people in his apartment and sing yeah. till 2 o'clock in the morning? Mm-hmm. It was one of those types of scenes where he's, you know, not wearing the black face and he's around the piano in his apartment, and he just breaks out and sings Cantor on the Sabbath to, to his friends in, in his house. And it was incredible, and they they cut it from the film for obvious reasons. It was too Jewish, too ethnic. But somehow the society came up with with this piece of footage and put it on a DVD, and everybody in the society has it now. No, that's that's amazing. And it's and and you know, and there were close-ups, you know, of Larry Parks lip-syncing these Yiddish expressions. And I, I just couldn't believe it. It's so uh, there's stuff like that. By the way, one thing I should I should mention, which you you will definitely be interested in, um, I believe uh, on February fifteenth, and I'm going to check right now because I want to make sure whatever the, whatever that second Saturday in February is. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it's the 15th. Uh, the New York Sheet Music Society is going to have a Jolson program that I'm putting together with a bunch of people in the society. You said it's a Saturday? It's the 16th if it's a Saturday. 16th, 16th February 16th, Saturday. Uh, go to the website, uh, New York Sheet Music Society. It's either .com or .org. I should mm-hmm. know this by heart, but um, forgive me for not knowing exactly whether it's .com or .org. Um, they have the usual, um, you know, uh, little flea market. They have a flea market of sheet music for about an hour. And then between 2 and 3.30, there's going to be a Jolson program. And what we're going to do is we've got a great singer from Staten Island named Tony Babino, who is like a Sinatra singer. Oh, Okay. But also knows the whole Jolson repertoire and has a great Jolson voice. Doesn't do an impersonation, but sings very much like him. And um, we came up with a script of the radio version of the Jolson story that was Mm. produced the year after the movie came out. And Jolson was actually in that um, production. So we have a script, and we're going to recreate that. I have the website for you. It's nysms.org. There you go. Yeah, New York Sheet Music Society. And all the information's on there. And um, and it, it should be um, – they, they, it's been performed at one of the Al Jolson uh, Society festivals and just was a hoot. You know, they, the script has all the old, you know, like soap <laughs> commercials in it. And you know movie promos that they did you know between the acts of the of the of the show, um, but it was but it was a total radio version of the movie, and uh, we're going to just recreate it. And Tony's going to sing all the Jolson songs. Well, that's great. So it should be a hoot. I want to do it. Jolson doing in Agata Davida. What do you think of that? <laughs> in Agata Davida, baby. 
they, you know, you, you know, you mentioned that it's kind of funny, but you know, I've always, tried, you know, fan, had a fantasy about um, Jolson playing parts in in Broadway musicals that he that he wasn't alive to do. Mm. And I and I thought of this, you know, at one of the society functions, um, you know, they always sell, you know, CD, Jolson CDs, and they right. play the music in the background. And at, at one event, I walked into the room, and I heard Jolson singing Some Enchanted Evening. Mm. And it was the first time I'd ever heard him do it, and it was amazing. And so I figured, well, you know, Jolson died in 1950, so he would have still been alive during, you know, Oklahoma and, yeah. and South Pacific. So it's not surprising that he did those songs. But it got me to thinking about, gee, you know, could Jolson have played Emile de Beck in South Pacific? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how would Jolson might have been like a great Fagan and Oliver. You know, yeah. because you know, to me, Fagan has always just been like a Jewish rabbi with an English accent. You know, sure. Um, you know, I, I I think he probably could have been Harold Hill in The Music Man. And, wow. And, you know, he and and it's not that much of a stretch to think that he could have been Tevye and Fiddler. Uh huh. Um, although he might not look the type. <laughs> He just would have would have put Sonny Boy in the middle of the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I were a rich man, and Sonny Boy would have been a mashup. You know? <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> I would I would pay extra to see that. Yeah. So, yeah. No, the Jolson thing is pretty cool, and I just you know as as a big Jolson fan, I I hope that um, there are just enough people you know as the years go by that are aware of him. And you know, keep keep them alive. Like we like we want to keep all these great um, entertainers alive from yeah. the early days of show business. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like every day there's like one less person who knows some of these people, and so they, you have to bring it to the to today's people. Yeah, I, like you know, it, it's funny. You know, the other day, I. I heard I forgot what the commercial is, but there's a commercial on the air where Jimmy Durante is singing. Yeah. Uh, I forgot which song it was. September song or one yeah, of those that's, songs that's that he used one. to sing. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was like, boy, you know, I wonder if people listening to this even know who that is that's singing. And and then I'm 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 cruising around the net the other day, and and sure enough, I find somebody is. Doing a Jimmy Durante show somewhere. Wow. So I don't necessarily know if it's in New York or or maybe it's maybe it's San Francisco or Chicago or mm-hmm. whatever. But it's great to find out that you know there are there are people, and they may not be you know they may not be young people. Maybe they're people in their forties or fifties or even sure. their sixties, but that are doing shows that keep the memories of these great entertainers alive. Well, I'm going to I'm going to take as my guest to that show Mrs. Calabash's granddaughter. There you go. Okay. You know her? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Wherever she is, I I'm sure she'll she'll want to come. So as we as we get to the uh last uh, section of our show, uh love to talk uh Get move the talk to baseball. Today was a big day for uh, in in the in the history of the Mets, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I got to tell you, I, I'm one of those people who who think the Mets did the right thing trading R. A. Dickey. Okay. And I I I loved R. A. Dickey 
as a writer, obviously, there there couldn't be a better story than the story that, that he produced. Um, coming out of nowhere as a knuckleball pitcher at his age, with with everything that he's been through in his career, um, just amazing story. Um, tremendous guy, incredibly intelligent. Um, and I was at the game when he won his twentieth this year. Mm. Um, but that said. As a Met fan, I know that the team has a long way to go to rebuild, to become a, a consistent winner. And when you can take a 38-year-old knuckleball pitcher who you basically got for nothing and build up his trade value to the point where you could get two great prospects that they got in this trade, especially the catcher, which they desperately needed, and, and which is so hard to get in baseball these days. I mean, if you have a good catcher, it's like you have you have gold. Um, it, it was something that they couldn't turn down. So, um, as much as I hated to see RA leave, I, I think it was a really good trade for the Mets. I couldn't help though, but but just be flashed back to the moment when Tom Seaver was traded. Do we really even though, have to? Even though there's like <laughs> they're not really comparable but but it it just reminded me of that moment when I was I felt so uh uh I remember how I felt at that moment you know in 19 in 19 in the spring of 1977 mm-hmm. when that was going on when that whole Seaver was Seaver going to be traded from the Mets uh was going on I was I was on the Lehman baseball team mm-hmm. and I remember going to practice or game every day after having read the latest story about, oh, you know, Tom Seaver's going to be traded for Don Sutton or the Mets going to sign him or, you know, and my heart was in my mouth all the time because because Tom Seaver was my idol. And at least in those days when I was, you know, a young kid thinking maybe I was still had a chance to be a professional baseball player. Right. But, um and it, it just uh, and when he was traded, it was devastating to me. I mean, I still I still have a little shrine filled with bobblehead dolls and baseball cards and magazine covers in my in my den in my office. <laughs> wow. But um, but I would not compare R.A. Dickey being traded to the Tom Seaver trade. <laughs> okay. Well, let's just hope that you know, like as you call them, great prospects. Let's just hope that those. Those pan out. They don't. Yeah, you never know. You what never was it? Remember what was that? What was that horrible trade in the um, the, the Mets had that? Uh, and, and everybody died. Like whoever they brought in, like was, I can't remember now who it was. Major, like three players for one in the sixties or early seventies. You mean the, not, that wasn't the Seaver trade? No, not I don't think. No, not the C, who was Seaver traded for? Oh, well, that was uh, that was um, Mike Flynn, Pat Zachary, Steve Henderson, and Dan Norman. No, not that trade. Um, what was the Nolan Ryan was the, one? Might have been Nolan Ryan. I mean, <laughs> well, Nolan Ryan was for Jim Fergosi. Yeah, that's the one. And at the and time, Nolan everybody, Ryan and at the time everybody thought that was a great deal. <laughs> right. That's the one. That's actually the the trade that made me like, oh, my, yeah, yeah. Like, let's let's hope it doesn't turn out to be one of those. Right. Yeah, I know. But you know what? Nolan Ryan was about 23 then. Yeah. You know, Ari Dickey's 38. You know, True. look, I, I hope Ari Dickey has a great year, but, you know, you just never know with guys that age that right. throw a knuckleball. On top of that, 
he's going to the American League where they have a DH, so the lineups are going to be much tougher. Mm. Um, so, you know, you can't count on him, you know, doing what he did for the Mets last year. But it was great to watch, and it was a tremendous story. So, you know, sometimes you just got to move on, but at least we signed David Wright, and, you know, we kept a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, we kept a guy who may end up finishing his career with the Mets will be a rarity in this day and age. So I'll tell you a little story. Back in 1965, my my dad used to do a lot of work in sports, and he did a lot of work with the Mets. Uh-huh. And... He brought us to the game, and we got to, before the game, hang out in the dugout, okay? My brother and I, hanging out in the dugout. And we were sitting there playing with Jerry Grody's glove, <laughs> which was like the size of a, you know, a, a giant plate, you know? I mean, you've never seen a thing like this in your life. And um, this young man comes over to us and says, hey, 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 kids, how you doing? Um, I'm Tom Seaver. I just, I'm, uh, I'm a pitcher with the Mets. It was his first year. 67. Yeah, six, did I say 60? I meant 67. Yeah, 67 was his rookie year. So, 96, I was I was 11 years old and uh and and he, and he was you know this very not he hadn't yet become that very cocksure guy. You know? Well, was, as a matter of fact, he was he was so young looking. I rem- I remember hearing the story he made the All-Star team as a rookie. And when he went to the went to the locker room, they wouldn't let him in. Wow! They thought he was they thought he was a kid. Yeah, <laughs> he, he ended up being like, rookie of the year. They wouldn't let him into the All Star game. And, and I'm we're probably the only person that he ever said, "Would you like my autograph?" <laughs> that's right. I'm telling you, that's how that's how. And like now, of course, is don't bother me. I'm too big and famous. But then it was like, well, "Would you like my autograph?" Oh, yes, sir. Sure. Why not? Okay. Well, my Tom Seaver, I have two Tom Seaver autograph stories. One is that, real quick, one is that um, I was at the game where he struck out the 19 guys against San Diego in 1970, and I have the, and I kept the scorecard from the game. And in 1983, in April of 1983, when I launched a magazine called New York Sports, it was the same year that Seaver was traded back to the Mets. Obviously, I had to put my hero on my first cover. Of course. So I arranged to do a photo shoot at Shea Stadium. I believe it was February before they went to spring training. And I brought the scorecard. <laughs> to. It was really funny being, you know, trying to be like this, you know, professional magazine editor, you know, who's not impressed being around <laughs> the celebrity. Right. And then saying, Tom, can you please sign my scorecard? Because <laughs> I'll, I'll just be the happiest, wonderful person. <laughs> like, you know, I, like, dissolved into Jerry Lewis mode. <laughs> you sounded like him, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, um, and I still have that. As a matter of fact, the Baseball Hall of Fame um, once offered, once asked me if I could donate uh, my scorecard. If I could, well, if I could give the scorecard to the Hall of Fame, and I asked them what I would get in return, and they told me that I'd have a lifetime pass to the Hall of Fame, and I said, no, I think I'll keep the scorecard. <laughs> Probably a good move. Probably a good move. So, yeah. Stephen, guess what? We have come to our final minute. Would you believe it? That's amazing. This it one is. flew by. Thanks right. for the memories. That's right. So I want to thank you very much for being on my show. It's a great to have you here. 
We had a lot of fun stuff. It was my pleasure, and it's great uh, reminiscing about the good old days at Lehman College. And Absolutely. Talking about cabaret and the Mets. What an eclectic mix of topics. Exactly. And tomorrow, by the way, I have another. I'm doing a back-to-back show. Doing a show tomorrow, my last show of the year with Adrian Gusov, and we're going to be talking Yiddish tomorrow. Ooh. You're going to want to call in. She's the booby, the boobygram lady. Unbelievable. That Unbelievable. sounds good. Ask her if she. Ask her if she knows. That the Yiddish, what the Yiddish song "Bells" is um, in the Al Jolson repertoire. Okay, I've left. <laughs> okay, thanks again, and thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow night. Good night.